Hey everyone, this is Spacetown and you're listening to What Happened to Chiptune. Today's episode is quite special as it features Jeremiah Johnson, aka Nullsleep. If you have even a passing knowledge of the US chiptune scene, you'll probably recognize Nullsleep's name as he was instrumental in the early New York City scene. He was one of the founders of 8-Bit Peoples and helps to organize and run Blip Festival for its entire life cycle while maintaining a music career of his own. Null Sleep is one of the most influential members of the US chiptune scene, and if you enjoy listening to chiptune at all, Null Sleep probably played some part in it. Hello. Hello. Hi. Um, hey, Null Sleep. <laughs> <laughs> How's it going? Um, I'm really excited to, to have you on the podcast. Uh, as one of the the OGs of of the New York City scene and just chiptune in general, it's uh, it's always really cool to be able to to interview people who were really really foundational to the scene and where it's uh, where it has been and where it's going. So um, so yeah, it's just like you know you're you're one of the big oh, ones. Thanks, so. man. Yeah, it, <laughs> it's cool it's, to get to talk. Yeah, to you. glad to glad to be speaking with you, and uh, hopefully I can contribute to this project in uh, a meaningful way. You know, I, I usually start off with asking people just like about their, you know, like their history with music and history with chiptune. Um, I feel like in your case, I, we don't need to like dwell on it so long because like, I feel like there are six different ways to like get your history with chiptune on the internet these days. Um, you know, and the first of which that I know of is, the the film reformat the planet so um so yeah we, we don't have to dwell on it too long but just to get a sense of like how you got into to making music in the first place and how that transitioned into chiptune um what was that like for you and like when did it start? yeah totally um i guess to try and keep this as condensed as possible it was like basically uh started writing music when i um got to college i'd written a little bit of music in a very weird way um towards the end of high school uh, i was doing like pc speaker music using cubasic on like our desktop at home and um had kind of like gotten very interested in the demo scene and sort of using computers for creative purposes and working within like strict limitations and that all appealed to me and um, and when I got to, uh, college, I had like, uh, my own computer for the first time. I had like a fast internet connection for the first time I got into downloading like pirated audio software and trackers and things like that. Um, and I also had been like talking to a friend of mine in Detroit, this guy, Mike Hanlon, who, uh, is who I would go on to, you know, pretty shortly after I got to college, found 8-Bit Peoples with. And um, and so, yeah, we uh, I sort of got into making music around that time just because of the access to software and the, um, and the uh, sort of private space that I now had at college. And, uh, and then pretty quickly went from um, sort of writing music that aesthetically was trying to sound like low tech and emulate the properties of like demo scene music or um early uh computer and video game music uh and then transitioned within i think the first six months to a year of writing music um to actually using the game boy to produce music um because i found out about lsdj and nanoloop and sort of picked up both of those so that's that's kind of like the the really 
quick cliff notes version and that was like around 1999 to 2000 and so you you pick up uh lsdj nanolu kind of start writing um tracks were you um based in new york at the time that this was kind of happening yeah so i was going to i was going to school at um columbia university um and studying computer science um so i was i grew up on long island about an hour outside of the city and then um ended up going to school um at uh, at columbia um so so yeah i was based in new york and uh and that's kind of like yeah where it all started and where most of my story has been so far yeah yeah i mean it, it, and it was um it's quite the story just in terms of like where where the scene kind of started from and kind of like as it progressed, um, you know, the, the New York scene has always been kind of the, one of the more defined scenes for me. I, I think, you know, that's due in large part to just the documentation at the time, you know, two player productions and, uh, you know, a number of photographers and, and you know, artists there. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the the founding of 8-Bit Peoples? Because I, I, at this point, I've talked to a number of people that were kind of around at the time that or it was founded or a little bit after. But you, I feel like you and, and Mike Hanlon were like the people that actually started it. So I was curious about like what the, like what the, the reasoning for starting the, the label was and kind of like your, your intent behind totally. it. Um, I mean, yeah, like the reason for starting it was just like we, it was basically like me and Mike and like, uh, me and Mike were the ones that kind of like initially started it. Mike was the one who came up with the idea to start a label and it wasn't even really like a label at the time we were kind of calling it like a collective. Um, and, uh, he, he was like, you know we're both making music like we're like maybe if we like put it out under like the, the umbrella of a collective like will you know people who listen to your music can like be exposed to my music people who listen to my music can be exposed to yours and it was just kind of like the the basic idea of like how labels or collectives work is like kind of like grow a community and like combine audiences and um uh, he had, you know, we had both been influenced by, um, the sounds of early video games and computer music. And, uh, I, so I, I believe it was Mike's idea to call it 8-Bit Peoples. Um, and I think there was, you know, I was like, peoples, like plural, like, you know, there was like a little bit of back and forth but, uh, around that at the beginning. And I think it's funny to think of how like defining that just conversation was because now it's like, it's, you know, been around for uh, close to 25 years and, um, and yeah. Um, so the, so I think it was like partially just because we were, we were young kids like making music and we wanted to put it out there and the internet, like find, like was giving people a way to actually distribute their own music without being on like a quote unquote real label. And the net le net label scene was sort of, um, just starting to form and, uh, uh, there were some other really cool labels around at the time, like Monotonic is another like early net label that also put out like Tracker and, and Chip Music and uh, did a lot of great stuff. And um, yeah, so it was just, uh, it was basically like, we just want to put our stuff on mp3.com and, you know, uh, link people to it. And we built, a, I, I put together like a very, um, basic website. Uh, I think it was 
in probably either like, I think October of 99. So like roughly a month after I got to college and um, we basically like, I ran a web server off of like my desktop computer in my dorm room. And we just had, I think the first um, URL we had for a, 8-Bit Peoples was 8bitpeoples.cjb.net, which was like a free URL hosting. Like it was like just like a free URL direct service at the time. Um, and yeah, and then that kind of it just started from there. And we over time just sort of started talking to other people and bringing other people into the mix. And then I think it was like, you know, a couple years later um, when I started connecting with more people like locally within the New York scene um, that then things began ramping up a little bit more in terms of like seriousness and activity. People like um, Josh Bit- Bitshifter and um, and uh, Minus Baby Rich. I, I think one of the, the interesting things about 8-Bit Peoples as, as like it was conceived is that it was, it is primarily a net label, right? And so... The, like the the space that it occupies um in chiptune is like primarily digital right but then you're also kind of like expanding the scene uh physically with with the shows and your co- kind of collaborations and things like that with you know bit shifter minus baby you know the kind of like the big five in in the early new york scene um was it like difficult at all to kind of like reconcile the two together like what did they feel like weird and separate or was it all just kind of like no it definitely like the physical and the digital you mean i yeah yeah it was just yeah because to me it felt to me it, it seems like it would be hard to like play a show and then be like look online <laughs> instead of like having cds and things yeah. like that to like give to people at least in the, in the yeah beginning. i mean i guess it, it yeah it's a good point because the the in, the the sort of digital and physical worlds were much more uh sort of defined back then where like there weren't like smartphones and everything we weren't kind of like always posting on social media it was still like the the myspace days and like um so it was just kind of beginning to get a little bit more merged um but i think for us it just felt like yeah you do you 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 make you write music you put it out online and then you write music and you play it live and it was for for me and i think a lot of the new york um scene like the live performance was a huge part of what we were interested in music for it's just that um connection with like an audience like in a real physical space and um but also the the internet was like pretty still like kind of like fresh and new back then. And it it was also very exciting to be like connecting with people over the internet and like forging those kinds of like connections um, with like all these other pockets of like weirdos that were into this kind of stuff, like around the world. Um, And so I think it felt to me, it felt like very uh, cohesive and like the, the two parts complemented each other. I never felt like there was like, a disconnect between those. Yeah. I mean, it, it's one of those where like, at, you know, cause you're, you're kind of like right in the middle of like, you know, uh, music becoming primarily digital, right. Where it's like CDs are no longer the, the dominant way to like listen to music. It's, it's getting to be all like MP3s and stuff. And so it is a little like, it's, it's interesting to see the way that you kind of like considered that approach where it's like, let's just not even make physical yeah. media. I mean, you did, yeah, we like, did. later and on. We, did, but we like, actually, yeah. we did, 
we did make CDs. Um, we made we made CDR releases with eight bit peoples, um, and we did sell those at shows. And a lot of the early releases were um, on three inch CDRs. Um, which mm-hmm. oh yeah, I, I do remember. Yeah, yeah. we thought <laughs> minus baby told me about yeah, that. which was like we thought was inches. like a cool <laughs> format. Um, just like visually, it was like rare to see like mini CDs and um and it was also like conducive to almost all of the releases that Apid Peoples put out were kind of like of the EP format and so it was like a good um good sort of match uh for that media. Um it was funny though because like you know when we started doing those physical mini CDs like everyone had like tray loading CD drives on like their computers which like had that like secondary indentation for like mini CDs. Um, but then like once like slot loading, like MacBooks started coming out, then we were like, yeah, Oh, <laughs> these CDs destroy these computers. Like, and we were just like, tell, make sure to tell people that when you sell them, like it's basically, was basically <laughs> our solution. Um, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we did, we did physical stuff, but like it was never the, uh, it was never like the primary focus. It was kind of like a thing to have for people at like shows so that you had some kind of merch around. Yeah. What was 8-Bit Peoples primarily a a label for just like all of Chiptune or did like, oh, I, I, okay, I'm, it seems like there's, um, as the scene grows, right, there's kind of like the broader Chiptune community yeah. and then there are like subsets within it that have different creative intents and, 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 uh, purposes and things like that. Um, and you know, when considering it from that perspective, that like broader perspective and also like retroactively considering it in, you know, from now it felt like 8-Bit Peoples always had like a very distinct, uh, curation and a very distinct like sense of what it was as a label. Um, and so I'm, I'm kind of curious if that like intent was always there or if you were trying to be more of like a, this is chiptune catch all, yeah. uh, kind of, uh, label before things got more defined in that way. So it, I, I would say it went through kind of a few different phases. So very early on, you know, me and Mike didn't really know what we were doing. We were just kind of like, we're, this is just like a cool place to release music for us and like whoever, whatever friends we have that are also doing music that might be like somewhat related. And so in the very early days, it wasn't like strictly like chip music. It was kind of like anything that had any degree of influence from that world. And so um, that could be things. I mean, a lot of the earlier releases, which are unfortunately kind of like lost to time now, there's like a lot of the early releases that we just don't have any record of anymore, but they were, there was some stuff on there that was le- definitely like much more what I would consider like IDM um, or like experimental electronic music, but maybe that had like one component in the track that was like, you know, a pure uh, square wave kind of oscillator synth and you're like that's yeah you take what you yeah can get it's back like <laughs> blippy enough to like you know bleepy enough to, to to sort of like work within like the the sort of like umbrella of the, the things that we were doing and and then i think what happened was as i got into working more with the actual hardware you know game boys and nes's and sid chips and things like that i my mindset became a little bit more purist and I was like, this has to be like 
yeah, this is kind of like a lens to kind of focus um, how, like what type of stuff we can put out. And so then I think at that point, which was like a couple of years into the project, probably we started, I think, getting more focused in, in terms of like making it be about like stuff that was produced on actual hardware. I think there were exceptions along the way, um, but it started the bulk of the, the releases that we were putting out were more hardware based trip music. And then that kind of, I think defined it for many, many years. And then after a period of time, then we started to also like open back up a little bit again and uh, realized that there were people that were doing super interesting stuff by combining chip music elements with other um, uh, musical elements, you know, people like Anamanaguchi, we put out the first Anamanaguchi release, Power Supply, Um, uh, people like um, Playcraft, um, who were combining like uh, acoustic instruments like saxophone and like um, bongos with um, with uh, uh, trip music elements and and those kinds of things were super interesting and that wasn't something that we wanted to uh, lose the ability to sort of showcase just because we were being like too hardcore like purist about it. I, I you know you, you kind of mentioned these these bands like um, Anamonoguchi and Playcraft and stuff like that. Um, I'm kind of curious as to how the scene developed in those early days because from from my perspective i see it as like 8-bit people's pulse wave blip fest you know and then whatever happens after blip fest, right and so i do feel like there's a lot of like intermediary stuff in between those things that kind of like you know you don't just get to blip fest with like nothing right so i'm, I'm kind of curious just like what what you feel like spurred the scene along as you're kind of progressing up until that first blip fest so i think that i mean that 8-bit people's pulse wave blip fest is like a pretty good representation of like the new york specific scene trajectory and um but i think that there was a lot of stuff going out going on like uh around the world that also kind of like was tied into those three things and like inspired them and made them possible and um so some of those things are uh well you know being a digital collective slash net label like we spent a lot of time making connections with other people online and other scenes another um i mentioned monotonic already i sort of connected early on with simon carlos who ran monotonic and we had a lot of we just chatted a lot back then about like what we were working on and like the kinds of artists we were um, going to be featuring on the labels. And there were, you know, there were definitely artists that kind of um, had releases on both labels. And, you know, I would see something come out on monotonic and be like, Oh, that guy's awesome. Like I want to get something from him for it. The people's Vim is a good example of that. And, um, and uh, then there was also, I, I would say the other were like really big uh, force within like, chip music and sort of like low bit music at the time was micromusic.net. Um, and so that was like a real like online hangout for a lot of like early chip music people. Um, they had like a little um, section of their site that like you could, it was basically like a little instant messenger that was built into, into the site. And um, so you could chat with other people in real time in like one-on-one like DMS um, like 
I would say like a lot earlier than like any other sites had that kind of thing. And um, so I got to like meet and talk to a lot of people uh, who I like looked up to at the time. Um, I mean, it was also, there was a weird, there was like a little bit of a weird overlap between like chip music people and like, um, like IDM people, like I mentioned uh, already. So like there were people who like were, who had released on like reflex records, like hanging out on micromusic.net and like, you know, reflex being like Aphex twins label. Like if you'd made electronic music, like you knew of reflex and like, if you logged into micromusic.net and you saw someone like who had released on reflex, you were like, Oh my God, this is like a, a rock star to me. Like, and I can just like chat with them. And um, it's kind of interesting how that dynamic got replicated throughout like like as chip music was getting bigger um you know i i had always thought of it as kind of like something like specific to to chip chip music and chip tune where it's just like you know you get to meet your heroes like really easily and quickly and you know to see that it was already happening on you know like micro music um it it feels like oh like maybe it is like just the digital space is kind of like collapsing people together in a way that like made it easy for, for. Yeah, totally. And it was, I think it's just also like, um, yeah, I think it was that kind of, uh, access to each other. And like the, the idea, I think that like, if someone was like weird enough to like find, to be on this site and like be hanging out there, then like they were probably like cool enough to talk to. And so like, I think that that's why, like, you could message, like, Psylob or, like, Electro Girl Girl, or, like, at DMX and, um, or, like, Bowdoin Standard 2000 and, like, they would respond to you and, like, uh, you could talk about, like, synthesizers and video game consoles and, you know, all this, all this stuff with them and, um, yeah, it was really cool. And then, yeah, I think that got, uh, that's carried over like throughout the generations of chip music in terms of like, you know, just like at a chip music show, like no one is like performing and then like going backstage and like not interacting with fans. Right. It's like, everyone is just like hanging out and like partying together. And, um, and then also social media has kind of like, you know, given everyone that access to like different people, um, who they like look up to and things like that. And so, yeah. Um, but getting back to the, the original question. So I think that like micromusic.net played a big role in sort of connecting, um, you know, the New York scene to like the scene, the different scenes in Europe. Um, Stockholm in particular had like, um, a lot of, uh, activity, um, around chip music and, and there were a lot of um, micro music parties in those early days, also like the early two thousands. Um, sort of like we would call, you know, if a, if there was like a critical mass of chip musicians in like any city, they would like refer to it as like micro music HQ New York, micro music HQ Stockholm, and then um, and then yeah, people would start putting together like micro music parties, um, uh, in those different places. And so that was something that I think, um, kind of like gave us this sense of like, Oh, this isn't like, just like something that's happening locally. Like there's, there are people all over these little pockets, like doing a lot of, uh, the same stuff. And like, it's cool to know that like we're part of not just something that cool that's going on in New York, but we're part of something cool that's happening like around the world. Um, And then I would say the last one 
that was kind of like really a huge influence was uh, vork.org, V-O-R-C, um, which which stood for video game or chip uh, video game or chip music or video game or chip tune. Um, and then that was a news site that was run by Halley. Um, and, uh, he was, uh, in Japan. I forget which city in Japan he was in at the time when he was running that, but, um, that was just like, once I found out about that site, I was like, first of all, who is this guy that's running this news site? And how does he find out all of this trip to news that's like happening? Like the second it happens, like he would, you would just like be, you know, he would feature eight the people's releases when they went up, but he would also like be like, there's a weird NSF file that was posted on like this forum. And like, here, here's that. And so he was a real like huge force. in um, again, kind of like creating that sense of like, this is something bigger that's going on. Like a lot of people are doing this and a lot of people are doing really cool stuff with it. And also because it was, based in Japan, it was the first place I think that really, um, like was a connector, like serving as like some kind of connective tissue between like the Eastern and Western chip music scenes. And so, um, he wrote the entire blog was, uh, available in Japanese language or English language. And so what he was doing by doing that was basically like giving, Westerners access to like all of this stuff that was happening in Japan that we didn't know about before um, in a way that we could read it and understand. And then also giving all of these Japanese chip musicians access to like this like um, world of like activity in chip music um, that was happening uh, outside of Japan. And that would then kind of play into the birth of Blip Festival um, and uh, and sort of like how things sort of grew in a global way after that. It's really like, because I, I compare it, you know, I, I'm mentioning this in every episode I do where I've kind of been reading through um, Meet Me in the Bathroom, right? Which is this chronicle of the early aughts, like New York scene, you know, like Interpol, The Strokes, yeah, 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 and stuff like that. Um, and so like, it feels you know, and, and, you know, you kind of see this with other like genres or scenes too. Like it kind of begins in a locale, right? There's like some sort of physical locale and then it slowly grows past whatever borders of that locale, that physical locale and, and kind of branches out to more and more areas. And what I'm struck by as you, you talk about this uh, is it seems like it happened in reverse for, for like chiptune where everyone is kind of just doing their own little thing in their own little pocket of the internet. And you're slowly realizing that there's, you know, more people that are, you know, doing the thing that you do. And this digital infrastructure is being built without like the physical uh, infrastructure corresponding. And then, you know, we, we will get to talking about Blipfest. Basically, I, I kind of want to ask you about Blipfest now, but like, what when I talked to others about Blipfest, I, I I think one one of the things that they were most struck by was just like how many people were already doing this stuff and how many people you could just like bring in already with like fully featured you know fully crafted um, creative aesthetics and and things like that you know how many of you there were and so you you know like that's what is like so interesting to me about the story is that it just seemed to happen in reverse to every other music scene 
Um, and so, uh, yeah, as we, I, I, I don't want to skip over Pulse Wave though, because I, I'm curious about like what the the role of Pulse Wave served um, as the scene was getting bigger in New York. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, I mean, I think that first of all, just to respond to what what some of the things you said, I think it is interesting how you're talking about potentially this almost like happening in a reverse way um, from tip from the typical way that these things go with chip music. And I wonder if that's like partially because like it, it's a bit more of like a niche uh, music uh, scene. And so like you can't like any one scene can't get that big on its own because it has, it was like niche and still is pretty niche, even though it's a lot bigger and a lot more sort of like, if you mention chip tune or chip music to a lot of people now, they understand immediately what you're talking about. Back then, people were like, I don't know what that is. Um, but I think maybe because of that smallness of it, it was like, it was, it was big in a distributed way and spread out, but like blip festival serve as, served as like a, a, a way of like condensating like the various scenes into like one place. And like, we were just like the, the first idiots who got to like put in all that work to make something like that happen. And, um, and yeah, uh, so that's, uh, so maybe, yeah, there is something to that, but as far as pulse wave, I think that was, um, you know, pulse wave was, uh, for those who don't know is like, it was a monthly event, um, or a regular event, uh, at times monthly, at times more spread out than, than that, um, in New York for, for chip music. Um, and it was hosted, um, almost always at the tank, um, which, uh, was a, a sort of performing arts venue, um, in, uh, in New York that had many different locations over, uh, over the years, but always, uh, played host to Pulse Wave and chip music shows and, uh, really served as like a home, um, for us. And I've likened it to kind of like what CBGB's was for punk music, like the tank was for chip tune. I don't think we could have established ourselves and established the chip music scene, um, in the way that we did, if we didn't have a venue that kind of partnered with us in the way that it, it did and really gave us that opportunity to like always host what we, what we were doing. Um, but in terms of how that sort of played into like the growth of the scene, I think it's just like, you need some kind of regular night um, around a type of music in order to like grow an audience. Like if you have like one-off shows here and there, like it will do something, but like there's something about having like a monthly night or like a regular night where people are like, okay, like I'm every time there's a pulse wave, I'm going to be there. Like I know that like it's going to be roughly this time of the month. And I know if I go out to this one, they'll tell me when the next one is going to be. And it kind of just gives people a, an easy way to like keep coming back and like, and also, you know, to bring in their friends and bring in more people to that audience. Um, as opposed to like having to keep track of like a bunch of different artists who are like talking about like, Oh, I'm playing a show at this like place or like, you know, and so you were, you, you were talking about how, how mind blown you were already about, about how Hallie could do it with. Voice. Totally. So, yeah. yeah. So it was, and yeah, it was harder to keep track of all, you know, social media again, like wasn't really like around in the way that we think of it being around now. It's um, it wasn't really easy to like follow people. You had to go to people's websites and like look at what they were saying on their websites about shows and things like that. And then maybe you've, 
forget to update your website about a show coming up. And so, so I think that just having like a, a kind of monthly event um, was a way for us to just continue building momentum with the chip music community and the chip music scene in New York and, um, and building that audience and, uh, and also just like giving people outside of New York a reason to like come visit and be like, Oh, I want to like, I make trip music. Like I can play a show in New York city. Maybe like, that's cool. Like I'm going to like try and like come to New York and, and tell these guys that I'm going to be there. And then maybe I can like play at a pulse wave. Um, so it was, a, yeah, I again, definitely tried to do that. At one yeah, point. <laughs> <laughs> it was like yeah. another way of like, um, uh, of like, bridging that digital physical gap that we were talking about. So yeah, I mean, let's, let's talk about, let's move to talking about Blitfest because that was, that, that seems like it was like the, the big thing (laughs) that kind of like once, once Blitfest happened, Shiptune started to, to grow pretty quickly and, you know, we, we can, people will have various opinions and things about like how much of it was Blitfest and how much of it was other things. But in, in my mind, it does feel like, one of the big like progenitors of like the the scene's growth um, at the time. So um, how did how did that come to be, and and what you know what uh, what spurred you on when it came to like deciding that you wanted to do this a big event? Yeah. So yeah, we can't talk about Blip Festival basically without talking about like the um, the tour that Josh Bitrifter and I did um, the immediately before it in two thousand six. Um, which was uh, the International Chiptune Resistance Tour. Um, and that was uh, one of the one of the stupidest and coolest things that I've ever done. And I'm sure Josh would probably say something similar. Um, it was, you know, we did, we did a world tour. I think it was five or six weeks long. Um, we left from New York and headed, um, headed east, um, flew out to Europe and basically like, kept going east until we got back to New York, um, over the course of like about a month and a half. And, um, we, you know, I think we had been invited to play. I think the way that started was we had been invited to play like, um, a few shows in Europe, like a, it was like a small tour. Um, uh, I don't remember which ones started that, sort of like started it but i think it was like somewhere it was i think it was like the netherlands and belgium maybe and austria i think it was like yeah it was like because there was like a vienna scene that like was you know a lot of nano loop musicians in vienna at the time and then there was some cool stuff going on in belgium and then the netherlands also had a an interesting scene going at the time and so i think that it was like a few shows within that pocket of europe um and you know, Josh and I were going out, uh, drinking a lot after work, um, around that time. And we would just hang out and talk about whatever, talk about drip music stuff, talk about whatever else is going on and, um, sort of like hatch all these plans. And, um, yeah, so we were stoked that we had gotten invited to play this like mini tour, um, in Europe and we were going to both be going over there for it. And, uh, and then, you know, we were like, well, if we're going to be over there, I wonder if like, you know, maybe we could play, maybe we could go a little early, play a show in like the UK beforehand. And, and maybe there's some other places in Europe, you know, that, 
there's Stockholm, like there's micro music parties happening and they had like a, a and similar to like Pulse Wave, they had like a regular sort of monthly um, micro music party in Stockholm. And we're like, we could probably like do something in London and do something in Stockholm. Maybe we could like extend the beginning and the end of the tour a little bit with those. And then we had also both like talked about how much we've, we'd both always wanted to go to Japan um, and I think because of like work, it was like, even it had ramped up like that interest because we were like, we could meet all these people. We're like, we're getting to know through like the music that they're releasing and the, that we're listening to on Vork and who we're, we're starting to talk to a little bit on the internet now. Um, and we're like, is that like, is that crazy? Like, could we, could we like go to Europe, play the, like play a tour in Europe and then just fly to Japan right after that. And like, play some shows in Japan, maybe like those guys would like be down to, to set something up. And then we're like, okay, yeah, that, that would be cool. Like we, we should try it. At least we should like reach out to people and see. And then we're like, well, if we're going to go all the way to Japan, should we just like come to, to like the West coast and like play some shows in the West coast and like keep going. And then, so basically it, it turned into this like small like three shows in Europe. And we were like, well, what if we just do a world tour? And we were like kind of drunk and laughing about it and like that would be so crazy and and we're like but but maybe we could do it and so we we started meeting and kind of like um writing out an itinerary and figuring out the logistics of it and uh and trying to calculate like what the actual costs would be in terms of airfare because you know it's one thing to be invited to play like a tour and as you know those people are inviting you so they're assuming they're paying the airfare and all of that. And, but once you start just asking people, Hey, can I play in London? Hey, can I play in Stockholm? You're not really like, you're not like, and also can you like pay for my flights? Like, you know? Um, so we were kind of like trying to figure out what it was going to cost us out of pocket. And then, um, and then also simultaneously like putting out feelers to all these different people in these different cities and seeing if it would even be possible if they would be interested and it ended up, we ended up getting to a place where we're like, this doesn't seem impossible. Like this seems somewhat feasible. Let's give it a shot. And, um, we ended up doing like a fundraiser, um, online, basically asking for fans to donate, to help cover the, the travel costs for the tour. And, uh, we raised a few thousand dollars, which definitely like, uh, offset a lot of like our airfare costs for, for the trip and everything. Um, but ended up, so we ended up doing it. Uh, we ended up meeting a ton of people um, in person and playing with them and hanging out with them who we had only previously interacted with online. Um, and so that really like solidified those like connections and like made all of these relationships feel a lot more real. Um, and in particular, I think Josh and I were both like really, um, like enamored with like the Japanese scene um, after that tour. And like, we were like, wow, they're like doing such awesome stuff. And like, they have such a like different kind of like perspective on um, chip music uh, and like a different sounds coming out of there than like a lot of the stuff in Europe and, and America. And so, and they ha were also like super gracious hosts and like, you know, really put on uh, like, great shows and um it was super fun so so basically we ended up coming back to new york and saying to mike rosenthal who was running the tank 
hey, we like met all these amazing chip musicians around the world while we were on this tour. Like, what do you think about like having a festival and like bringing some of these people um, to New York to kind of like um, to showcase them here? And he was into the idea and we, you know, we started talking about it. We were like, yeah, like, you know, I think it was initially we were like, we were saying like a two day festival um, and then we started like drafting up a list of the artists and then we're like, Oh, well, this is like kind of a lot of people, like maybe it should be a three day festival. And then by that time we were done with it, it was a four day festival. Um, and we were bringing a bunch of people from, you know, Europe and, uh, and Asia over to, to play. And, um, it really was because it was like that, it was that, that same momentum of, um, of that tour where we're like, we just connected and like really had this real feeling of connection with all and camaraderie with all these people around the world. And now we wanted to like bring them to New York and like in a way to like repay them for their like graciousness and like helping us like make this thing happen. Like, and also just because we were like, their music is awesome. And we want to like showcase that to the New York community. It's, it's honestly kind of an incredible story um, to, to think about just because it's like, you, you know, you think about the ways that 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 people try to do music and do live performance and things like that these days and it's just like it feels it feels impossible right and so it's th- this idea of like people who make a niche kind of music like deciding that they want to go on like a world tour and then making it happen like basically completely independently um it it's it's just like <laughs> it's such a great story that like uh, of course like the mem- there's a bunch of momentum behind it and of course like it will just progress on and 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 do things like that and i think one of the interesting things is like you know not to get too like lovey-dovey about it but like it feels like chiptune f- like bridged a lot of those gaps like bridged a lot of um a lot of potential like pitfalls that you could have gotten into because when you think about the ways that like people in a particular scene try to leave their confines and go to other places. Um, you know, it's like, oh, well, this is like the Seattle conception of rock music versus like whatever's happening in the South versus whatever's happening in California, right? So it feels like you're kind of like butting up against barriers uh, of what those other conceptions of like rock or, um, you know, dance music or whatever feel like it's, it's a very ge- geographical thing. And with chiptune, it's more like, we just have this, this thing that we're doing and it's so niche that if we can just connect with other people doing it, um, then, you know, that, that's a, that's a connection that we've made and we just need to connect people until like, we've covered the world in, totally, yeah, in yeah, yeah. tune. So yeah. it feels very like utopian. It feels very like, um, like, like less, less um, competitive than other like music scenes would be. Oh yeah. And so that's kind of I like, think that that's, yeah. yeah, I think that that's totally accurate. I mean, I think that there is uh, something that I feel like I always felt within the trip music scene, especially in those, uh, the earliest days was like a sense of like community and like an openness to like share techniques or share resources and um, really like welcome anyone. Uh, and I think that, yeah, it's partially because of like what you're talking about where it's like this, this is such a small niche form of music that like 
what are what, what's it's not going to serve anyone to kind of like have animosity and in, in, infighting within the scene and like between different geographical locations or things like that. I mean, I think that there were things that happened along the way that we kind of like sometimes played up that in a joking way. Like um, I remember there was like a New York versus Vienna, like Game Boy music battle at some point And, you know, those kinds of things, but like everyone, everyone really was just like in it because they loved this music. And we were like, I can't believe there are other people that love this type of music. Um, and, but I think that in terms of like making something like that tour happen, like it really, it really was just like, the right combination of like stupidity, like and uh, goodwill. You can call it naivete. Yeah, naivete. Naivete, if you want, or stupidity. I mean, we were drunk coming up with this idea, so I would say maybe more stupidity. Um, but that combined with like goodwill, and I think there was so much goodwill in the chip music scene, where it's just like, Pete, like the fact that we were able to raise like a few thousand dollars to like help finance it just by like asking like people if they wanted to help us make this happen. Like that's just like goodwill from like the scene where they were like, we want to see like bit shifter and all sleep be able to like do this tour and like, and then all of the people like hosting the shows and like making and like letting us crash on their couch and like taking us, you know, driving us, around their cities like that's all just like goodwill no one was like getting rich off this no one was like getting famous off this it was just like we want to do this because like it's we're having fun and like yeah it's it just it it was yeah it it had it, it was a very special feeling back then around this stuff um so yeah i mean the 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 first blip fest happens it's a huge success there's a whole movie about it <laughs> so you know we don't need to to rehash that i don't think um i i'm kind of curious as to like what the you know, I, I'm going to call it aftermath. Some people could call it like legacy, but essentially like the, 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 the period after that first blip festival, as you're kind of like settling into running blip festival, basically every year, yeah. um, you know, up until it's, uh, up until you, you stopped doing it basically. Cause you know, blip festival doesn't, um, it, it isn't, it doesn't exist right. right now in, in a live capacity. So, um, so yeah, I mean, what was it like after that first Blip Festival to kind of like keep putting on these events and like keep um, like bringing all these people together? Well, I mean, after the first one, we were just, I think we were all kind of like, whoa, that was, that was crazy. Like that was way more successful than we expected it to be. And like, I can't believe that happened. And um, I I also, I think on the last night of the first Blip Festival, like without talking to Mike or Josh, I like said something on stage, like, uh, thanks everyone for coming and we'll see you next year. And like, I basically just like forced us into like doing it again. Um, and, but I think there were, I think I did that because the, I feel like at the time there was like no question that we wouldn't be doing it at least one more time, just because it, it had been so successful and it had been so fun, um, to do it. And, uh, and there were so many other people that, you know, in terms of like coming up with that lineup for the first year, there were so many people who were like, oh man, we wish we could also bring these people, but we need like another year to do that. Um, so I think that there was like a big feeling of like an afterglow after that first one. And, 
Um, and all of the artists involved were also like, wow, this is like amazing. It was like the largest crowd. Almost all of those people had played to up to that point, probably. Um, and so everyone was super excited about it. And uh, yeah, we, I mean, me, Josh and Mike basically just immediately started talking about like planning the next year's installment and um, figuring out where it was going to be because the first one was held in like a, a weird, uh, it was like the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council, um, which was an organization that um, kind of like has a bunch of different spaces in New York that are like not really specifically like art spaces, but they like are repurposing them for like artistic um, uses. So the first Blip Festival actually like happened in what used to be an old bank that was like kind of gutted. I, I've heard, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Other people have said, yeah, it's basically. And right. yeah, and it, it was, yeah, it was, it was a bank and it was like down, it was also like down kind of near Wall Street. It was like a very weird location to be doing this kind of thing. And, um, and we were like, well, we're probably like that, that location might not even exist next year in that capacity. Like we don't know how long the lower Manhattan cultural council will have access to it. And so we started talking about where we we're going to do it. And, um, iBeam, which is like an actual dedicated arts organization in space in New York, um, came up as like one of the early options, uh, like good options early on in the discussions. And, um, so that's sort of where we ended up doing the next years, but we kind of just, we said like, you know, the formula we established that first year kind of like worked, like, let's just do it again with a new batch of people. And, um, the only rep repeat performers were like the kind of New York crew because you kind of want to give them you, you know it's the new york event you want to be able to always showcase um what's happening in new york but then also bring in this entirely new group so yeah we were we were excited um you know to continue on with it and then uh i think you know with each subsequent year it it started to it started to become maybe I won't say less fun, but I think it started to become a little bit more exhausting because um, we did, you know, we did it for quite a while and we started expanding it outside of New York and doing it in other locations, which meant organizing multiple blip festivals um, a year. And uh, yeah, after a while, it, it kind of took its toll a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, it is hard to organize like events like that, just like over and over and over again. Like it, you know, as soon as you, you finish one, it's like you, you can't even take a break. You have to start working on the next one. Um, did you have a sense of like the scene, like the, with, with New York and kind of like across America and, and the world, like, did you have a sense of like that, that chip tune was kind of like picking up steam at this time as, as you were like working on, on these blip festivals and how, how, what did that like feel like? Did it, did, were you trying to like harness that like energy for the subsequent? Yeah. I mean, it definitely, it definitely felt like it was picking up steam. And I think that there was, you know, the fact that we saw as many people come out to blip festival the first year as, as we did. And then, um, you know, even more people, uh, come out in 2007, um, and just like, yeah, the energy was there. And like, there was just like this feeling of like, there's, there's an audience for this. And like people, and like people were like coming from like flying, like people who are just 
not performers, but like actually just like coming to see the festival were like coming from places outside of New York and like, you know, outside of the country even and flying to New York to, to come to Blip Festival. And so that was just like an indication that, okay, like something is happening here and like we're doing something that like is really resonating with people. And then we also had some, we, you know, we had um, over the years, like a number of like sponsors, like reach out to us um, about like sponsoring the festival and like, you know, for better or worse, uh, we, <laughs> you know, we, I think we're so uh, anti-capitalist slash like independent, like we don't want this kind of like corporate branding anywhere, like on any of the Blip Festival stuff that we, I think, turned down every single one of those opportunities, unless it was like something where it was like, we want to give you a bunch of cases of free beer. Like then we were like, okay, sure. Yeah. And we don't have to put up any banners. We just like sell your beer. We can do that. Um, but yeah, there, I mean the fact that that kind of like, like there were, there were corporate sponsors that were like interested in, uh, in sort of like getting involved at some points, that was like an indication also that like, okay, something, you know, something is, is happening here. Um, but, but yeah, and then, like, I think it also, people around the world and, like, who had, like, the artists who had come to Blip Festival, like, took that energy and excitement back to their respective, like, cities and, like, also, like, kind of, like, I think felt inspired and emboldened to, to like, try and make bigger things happen. And that, I think, maybe resulted in, like, more monthly shows happening in, like, a lot of different cities and, um, and yeah, just... Uh, just kind of trying to trying to keep keep the scene growing globally, yeah. You know? And so you know, kind of fast forward to like near the the end of Blip Festival, you 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 guys kind of stopped, uh, decided to to stop uh, hosting or stop organizing them because it was, you know, very exhausting yeah. to keep doing it and 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 all of that stuff. So like, did you was there like ever a just a conscious like we have to stop doing this like moment or was it just like, like a slow realization by all of you that like, this is just too much to continue to organize. Uh, I, I don't know. That's, that's a hard question to answer. I think (laughs) it's probably a little of both. Like, I think it was, I think it was just like, we, yeah, I think once we started doing multiple festivals a year and like, you know, organizing a New York festival and also like one in Europe and also like one in Tokyo and also like Australia. And it just, it got to the point where it was, um, it was basically like a year round job um, to like be organizing festivals while all of us also just had real jobs that paid us money to live. Like, whereas Blip Festival did not pay us any money to live. Um, and and then also, I think a big part of it was like, Josh and I, you know, weren't, weren't getting enough time to like work on our own music during those years. Like we, um, you know, we were so busy organizing Blip Festival that there were, there was a lot of time that was taken away from us, like continuing to like write and release music ourselves. And then also while continuing to like try and run eight bit peoples and like showcase other people's music. And so it just became um, too few people trying to do too many things at once. And uh, you can do that for a little while and you can kind of like 
you know, dig down deeper and deeper and find that, uh, find the energy to keep doing it. But then like after, you know, six years or so of doing that, like the well kind of starts to dry up a little bit and you're like, I need, we need a break. Like we need to, we need to recharge and we need to like refocus and like figure out what we're doing. And, um, I think that I feel like when we stopped doing it, uh, I think we kind of framed it as like, we're taking a break from this. Um, because I think it was too hard for us to say like, we're, we're just never doing this again. Um, but I think that it was, once we took a break, we were like, whenever the, you know, Mike, Josh and I would get together and have drinks sometimes. And whenever it would come up, like the thought of doing another one, all three of us were just like, we're not ready. Like, it's just can't. like, it's like, I'm just going to put, I'm just going to close my eyes for a couple of yeah, minutes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> into all day. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it just, yeah, yeah, just knowing how much work it was after doing it for so long, I think it, it became, once, once we had a chance to step away and take a breath, like it came, it became very difficult to like think about like diving into it again. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, and and something I'm actually really really interested in is is kind of when you finally get the chance to take a break, yeah. right? And you're you're you kind of just sit and you can actually like see what the landscape looks like at at that at that point. Um what did it look like to you? Like what did it feel like to kind of like survey the the what what Chitin mm. looked like after you were, you know, after you actually got a chance to, to sit yeah. back and not have to like be one of the people like pushing it yeah, forward yeah. basically. Well, I, I mean, I can only speak for myself and my perspective at that time. Um, but I, I can tell you it's like, I felt pretty burnt out, not just on blip festival, but on chip music by that point. And um, I, you know, I think we hosted so many incredible performers and super talented artists throughout all of those um, different installments of Blip Festival. But by the end of it, I was like, I don't know if I want to listen to this stuff anymore. And like, I don't know if like, I felt like I had pushed my own music, um, you know, in terms of like the Game Boy music I was doing, I had pushed it to a pretty far place for me in terms of what I wanted to do with it. And, um, and so I think I, I kept doing chip music folk, like primarily chip music focused stuff for like another few years after blip festival ended. But then I kind of like, I think it was around, um, actually maybe it wasn't even, maybe it was like another year or so after that. And then, but then around the time blip festival wrapped up, I kind of, found myself moving a little bit away from the chip music scene and kind of, I got into um, modular synths and I got into um, kind of like working just in genres that were, you know, that had maybe still chip music elements. I've always, almost always like used a Game Boy or an NES in like every piece of electronic music that I've written, but it wasn't like I'm just using a Game Boy with LSDJ anymore it was like i want to i want to expand the sonic palette that i have to work with and and find some different timbres and stuff and so so for me it's hard to say like what chip music looked like because i was like 
I'm going to stop just, looking. You didn't want like, to do basically, with it. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I've seen yeah. enough. And uh, I, I will say the one thing that, the one thing that I felt um, at the end of Blip Festival was also, I was a little bit like, I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of like a, a diplomatic way to, to say this, but like, I don't know if there is, so I'll just say it. Like I felt that, I felt a little conflicted because I think Blip Festival was a was a good thing to sort of build the scene and um, both in New York and kind of like globally. But also I had this like feeling also like somewhere in my gut that like we were having too much of an influence on like the type, like basically like people were writing more and more a, a style of chip music that would like play well on a stage at a festival. And I feel like early, like there was a lot of, like in the early days, like when at the first Blood Festival, there was a lot more diversity in chip music and like the types of like chip music genres and styles that people were working in. And there was a lot more experimental stuff. And then I feel like towards the end of Blood Festival, it felt like everyone was just like, I need to like write dance like trip music dance bangers and like you know because people are there's going to be a crowd i want to get them like partying and like moving and like stage diving and so i had this like i don't know almost like a sense of and this also it's entirely possible this is like totally in my head and like this there's you know blip festival had no in no way this much influence on trip music as a whole but like for me, in my head, I was like, we're doing a disservice to this um, this style of music because, like, we've created this thing that is causing people to, like, write to get to Blip Festival, to play at Blip Festival, and it's, like, making the... It's, like, condensing the style into, like, this, like, more, like, standardized template of, like, what you're supposed to do. Like, you have to, like have like a big, like a big wave kick and like, you know, layered wave kick. And like, you have to make it sound like it's, you know, it's not coming from a Game Boy and which in some ways was always the goal. Like you wanted to be able to like, say like, this is this music, this is music that like, doesn't even sound like it's coming from a Game Boy. It's so like incredibly produced. And, um, but, and I don't know, over the course of that development, like, I feel like there were some things that were lost in those, like, rough edges and, like, you know, um, imperfections and sort of, like, more amateur approaches to music that is, like, really interesting and, like, was what made the whole scene um, as interesting as it was. Um, and so I think that's that's kind of, like, what my own perspective is. And I imagine that your responses to that question will differ greatly in terms yeah, of like yeah. the, the different people you asked about it <laughs> yeah i mean you know it it i i can definitely see where you're coming from because you know a after blip festival ended it felt like the new um you know if you didn't want to play you know like the the other blip because it, it basically turned into square sounds yep. at the time um and so if you weren't interested in those like it felt like the next big thing after that was Madfest, mm, right yep. And for a little bit, MAGFest was, like, those lineups were those, like, dance banger, like, you know, LSDJ things. Um, and 
so so I, I can see I, I can see what you're saying, right? Where it's like it it felt like the scene was like homogenizing in in a weird way and not just that it was homogenizing but like there's like some guilt around having built the scaffolding that people could use to like to to see oh like and and you know th- this kind of came up in in the interview i had with peter swim too where once blip festival happens the creative goal stops being i want to make interesting music using game boys and more like i can I want to play Blipfest, and so the steps to play Blipfest are: I write some music, play the Pulse Wave open mic, yeah, yeah. play play Pulse Wave, you know, kind of kind of like that. Um, but I also, I, I mean, I also feel like the scene was kind of like taking steps toward that homogenization outside of Blipfest because there were like there were just other events and there were other um, parts of the scene that were just like we're trying to get in with our like communities and like one of the easier ways to get people to participate in that is to just create like functional dance uh, totally music that, like, yeah. people yeah so um just try basically like you don't 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 be yourself <laughs> you're trying to absolve me of my sins uh, yeah yeah a little bit <laughs> um so yeah i mean i i kind of you know we're, I, we're getting to you know I'm, I'm gonna ask what happened to chiptune but before we do I, I feel like i've done enough interviews to kind of like you know there always seems to be the two approaches to this question right when when you ask like what happened to chiptune there's there's always like what happened to chiptune for you right like you personally and then what happens to like the scene in general and I think it's a little bit of, like, each episode that I've recorded kind of, like, goes in one direction or another. I I feel like with this one, it's complex because you have been in it for so long and you did, you know, you worked on things that were, like, hugely influential in the scene. Um, But I, you know, and, and so we have talked about a little bit about how you fell out of love with the sounds and, and, and things like that. Do you have a sense of, like what what happened with the scene when you were able to kind of like get over your like i just don't want to be associated with anymore like did you ever kind of try to reconnect with the scene at all um and and then you know if you did then like what 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 trajectory what trajectory did you see and like do you do you have any sense of like where that uh, that that went yeah so i definitely feel like i've over the last couple years began to reconnect with chip music and um i mean it was so i think i would say like from around 2015 to like 2020 ish i was like pretty much completely disconnected from it and like didn't really know what was going on and with the exception of maybe like occasionally going to a show in new york um you know where friends were playing like i i was not really paying attention to what was happening with it much anymore. Um, Once I uh, began reconnecting with it, I, so in 20, so basically 2020 COVID happens, you know, I, uh, I have left New York with my wife. We're traveling around. We're um, in Arizona now and, you know, COVID happens. There's a lot of free time not going out. I start thinking, well, I have a ton of old Game Boy music that I like was basically my best material that I've never released. Like maybe it's time to start going through and like doing proper recordings and putting this out. And so 
I started putting out some um, trip music releases on on Bandcamp and um, sort of begin reconnecting with the scene in that way. And then also just start um, kind of trying to pay attention to who's active, who the new names are, who I, you know, wasn't familiar with from, um, from like pre 2015. And then also uh, starting to learn about like some stuff that went down while I was away, which mostly sounds horrible. And like, there's a lot of like, it sounds like really bad stuff happened during those years within the chip music scene, just in terms of like, um, I, I don't know enough about that history to like start naming names, but like, it didn't sound great. Like it sounded like maybe I stepped away at a good time. Um, and, uh, and yeah, just kind of, um, revisiting, I think after, you know, my ears having a break for like five or six years, I was like ready to hear some unfiltered square waves and white noise bursts again. And, uh, and it felt good to sort of like put some of that, that stuff out from, uh, you know, go into the vault and put some of that stuff out from the archives. And, um, I still have a few EPs worth of material that I'm planning to, uh, to release on Bandcamp from that, the sort of like Game Boy centric days of, uh, the Null Sleep Project. And, um, and yeah, just also continuing to, you know, write music, um, in sort of, I don't know, the, a, a bunch of different genres um, from like uh, breakbeat hardcore to jungle to trance, um, but still always, I'm still always incorporating uh, chip music elements into those tracks. And, you know, I have a, to the right of me, I have my Eurorack modular rig, but I, and, you know, a 303, but I also have an NES, a Sega Genesis, a Super Nintendo and a Game Boy, you know, all hooked up and running into the mixer as well. And so those are always going to be, a part of my sonic palette that I work with. And, um, and, you know, there it's sort of the roots of where I came from and, uh, and where I am now. Yeah. I mean, it it is kind of interesting to see people reconnect with it. Um, I, I, and I, I think there's, there's something very, um, like for me, I, I don't think I ever like, took a break from chiptune like because and and i was one I'm, I'm wondering like maybe i just didn't like push it hard enough to like get tired of it and want to take like a complete break from it and that only happened like relatively recently like in 2019 but i think like you ha- being able to t- just take such a clean break and then kind of like come back to it it's it's almost a, like you got put into stasis a little bit and then you, yeah. <laughs> you come back out and you're just like you you haven't lost like the 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 joy that comes from like using those those old sounds and using those old devices um so it's also like it, it's it's nice to like hear that and and kind of like know that you're it, it hasn't like completely gone away and things like that um yeah but but I'm, I'm also like do you do you see yourself like if whatever like the chiptune scene looks like, do you see yourself like participating, like coming, coming back to, and like participating it, uh, participating in the scene in a more like, I I can't come up with the words to say it. So just like in a more like scene like yeah. manner. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know. I, uh, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. I think that like, I mean, it, I've, like within the past, you know, 
couple years I've played like chip music, like chip music nights. Like I play, I, I went to the UK, I think that was last year now. Um, and played a few dates in the UK and like, you know, in Sheffield, I played steel city chip tune, which is like, you know, and then I also played at like rave nights and like, you know, uh, I played at bang face and I played at like, you know, a, uh, a sort of like, um, uh, an art space and like all these different things. So I don't have anything against playing like, um, chip music specific nights or like, um, in chip music specific scenes. But I do think that, and I think that this was a feeling that I started to develop also towards the end of, um, when I was, you know, very active in the chip music scene was like, we're in some ways doing ourselves a disservice by like, you know, there's, there's like a double edged sword to building a scene. And it's like, you focus, if you have such a focus on one thing, it does make it like very easy to understand for and find for the people who are into that one thing, but it also like cuts out a lot of other people. And so by like hyper-focusing on chip music, like you build a, a core audience of people who are very into chip music, but then like you leave out a lot of people who maybe if you did more hybrid electronic music nights, you could like continue to, to build a more diverse audience. Um, and so I think that for me, I'm interested in playing more shows these days that are like electronic, like electronic music nights and raves and stuff like that. And, uh, exposing, um, people to these types of sounds in different contexts. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I, I think another thing I think to say is just like, I don't think that I'm the only one doing that kind of thing. I think that there's chip, you can hear chip music elements now in tons of different types of electronic music. And I think like, that's also part of the answer of like what happened to Chiptune is like Chiptune like became like very, distributed throughout um electronic music uh in general and um i feel like i no i noticed like the little chip music arpeggio kind of like um stuff especially as in a lot of different um tracks that i hear um from a ton of different artists and um so yeah i don't know it's uh it's you know it's funny hitting you with the hard ones today. yeah it's a, it, it, it's a it's yeah it's a funny uh, question to, to be trying to answer. And I don't think that there's like, you know, I think the, the history is still being written, right. we're still, still seeing how things are unfolding. I will say like one of the things that I'm really happy to see in terms of like how the chip music scene has like evolved and where it's at now is like, there's a lot more, um, diversity in it, like, um, in terms of women and, um, you know, women and people of color and, uh, trans people. And, um, and I think that that was, you know, in the times when like, you know, we were organizing blip festival and, um, putting on pulse waves and everything. I think that there was like always a real struggle to like find more like women playing chip music and like to focus on and feature. And there just wasn't, you know, we we actively tried to do that kind of thing and make sure that we were showcasing diversity but there wasn't there just wasn't as many people doing it at least that we knew of maybe we could have done more to to seek 
seek out um, that diversity and uh, or maybe we could have done more outreach in terms of um, building out that diversity in the community. But I do think it's it's great to see that there is that kind of um, broader spectrum of people getting involved in ship music today. Yeah, I, I you know, as as I'm kind of like doing this project and like talking to different people, you know, I, I've kind of always been obsessed with like what the the definition of chiptune is, um, just because you know, just for my own, just for my own like purposes, and and because I think that that's an important thing to talk about when you talk about a scene, and it seems like it's increasingly like we we define chiptune as like a meth- methodology, and then like sometime in the mid tens, it kind of became an aesthetic. And like now I feel like it's becoming and this there's like no academic basis or theoretical basis for it, but it feels like it's kind of becoming like a vibe mm. now <laughs> where you know the 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 specter of chiptune seems to just like be in in all these different places and seems to like kind of show pop up in in various areas, but like it it feels like it's kind of like like you said just gone into different styles and scenes and, and aesthetics and like taken taking them and and like you know there's just a little bit of chiptune here and a little bit yeah. of chiptune there so um i i think that like your your answer in terms of just like one you know having seeing that that scenes are or are, are more diverse these days and two kind of like seeing that we don't have to confine chiptune to like a specific thing yeah. and it, it can just go out and exist in the world um, makes me feel like you know there there is actually like a future for for chiptune that it hasn't like completely just like moved away and that like that whatever that future looks like will probably be more compelling um, than than you know what whatever the early days were at the at the beginning specifically because it's like oh we're, we're like attaching ourselves to whatever the essence mm-hmm. of that feeling was. Um, and, and, you know, if you can kind of like leave all of the, all of the baggage from like methodology and aesthetic and association with like video games and all of that stuff, um, you can kind of leave that all behind and like attach itself to attach yourself to whatever that like little feeling is, because yeah. that's something that I get when I talk with you is just like if those early days were so characterized by like, we're all just doing this thing and we're all just so grateful that we're able to like find other people doing that yeah. thing. And that's, you know, as I grow older and as I kind of like, you know, see different communities and things popping up, that's what I'm most attached to now is just like, oh, look at, look at these people, look at this like local scene, like look at the the small group of people doing this thing. Like that, that's, that's an energy that I want to like latch on. Oh yeah. I mean, and it's not lost on me what an incredible like opportunity it is to like have the chance to be a part of something like that at the right moment in time. Like I am so incredibly grateful that I got to like be a part of this, um, you know, and like play a role in like building up the scene in New York. And um, I mean, so much of it is just luck and being in the right place at the right time. And, you know, and just paying attention to what's going on around you, but then also bringing your own interest to things and then like finding places where like those two dovetail and you're like, I'm in, I'm passionate about this thing. I noticed that other people are kind of like into this, like adjacent thing. Like, can we like harness some kind of energy to like 
to build that up. And um, I mean, yeah, I think just like being in New York at that time, you know, LSDG and Nanoloop had like very recently been released. Um, I grew up, you know, playing Nintendo consoles, playing the NES, playing with Game Boys. It had that kind of like historical importance to me personally. Um, and then the fact that they're in New York were, you know, Josh Bitshifter, Chris Glomag, Hey Young, Bubbly Fish, um, Mark DiNardo, and Rich Minus Baby, and among others, like those having that kind of like critical mass of like other people who were also doing this was just like, the, it was, yeah, it ju- just sort of like was a, a spark that, you know, we were able to, to sort of like turn that spark into like a fire for a, a while and like, and do some pretty crazy stuff with it. And um, yeah, I'm just so, I, I remember, I remember being on a plane with um, Bit Shifter and I think it was like, you know, somewhere in, in the middle of uh, the world tour we did right before Blood Festival. And I was, I think I said something to the effect of like, like this plane could crash and I could feel like I like lived a full life already. Like this is like more than I ever thought that I'd be able to get to do in my life. And, um, I still feel that way. I mean, I'm happy. I'm still, I'm happy. I'm still here. I'm happy the plane didn't crash. We did a lot after that too. And I, I'm happy to still be uh, pushing music forward and, uh, and getting to see what other people are doing. But, but I do really feel like there was so much, just in those early years that gave like, um, yeah, meaning to life and like, uh, and really, um, I look back, back on fondly and I, and I hope that, you know, I hope that there's more ahead of me. Um, that's just as exciting. Um, and I think that I, I don't want to wrap up the conversation also without mentioning the M8 tracker, you know, that Tim Trashady has put out recently and, I think that that's um, such an important piece of uh, hardware in terms of like the story of chip music's evolution, because it is, I feel like it is to this like new phase of like chip music vibe, you know, what LSDJ and the Game Boy were to the, to that, those like early 2000s days where it's like the same interface. It's the same tracker approach. It's like very familiar if you were writing chip music on a Game Boy, but it is this extremely expanded sonic palette to work with. Um, and I think that also played somewhat of a role in sort of my interest with reconnecting with the scene. And um, yeah, I don't know. I think that in terms of chip music as like kind of a genre and a meta genre, it just, it, it makes me think of that, like, I think it's a quote about, like, uh, obscenity or pornography, where it's like, I don't know how to define it, but I know it when I see it. And, like, that's how I feel about chip music. I'm like, I don't really know how to define chip music, but, like, I know it when I hear it. And that could be, you know, a pure Game Boy track, or it could be, an, you know, a jungle track uh, that's written on the Amiga. And I'm like, I can, I know by listening to this that that was written in a tracker, because I just know this kind of music well enough. Um, and yeah, I think it was maybe Mikey 303 that said something at some point where he's like, uh, jungle, jungle is chip tune, like prove me wrong. 
Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. It's uh, chip music. I, I, what happened to chip music? It's it's all around us. Yeah. <laughs> that, that I mean that that is a fantastic place to end it. In in with this like, <laughs> I feel like we're we're about to like you know like turn into like you know we're just gonna have like ascend into magic sparks yeah, into hands. A yeah, pu- like, pure so, chip yeah. music uh, energy <laughs> yeah um well you know thanks again for taking the time to talk with me this um this was fantastic i always you know love getting to speak with you and and uh, you know i'm never taking for granted the fact that i get to you know talk with people who are like formative in the scene and have done so much uh for the scene and with the scene so um, so yeah, thank, thanks for, for chatting with me. This was awesome. Yeah, of course. Thanks for, thanks for having me. And thanks for uh, putting together such a, a thoughtful interview. I, I really appreciate it. I had an amazing time talking with Jeremiah, and I hope you enjoyed our conversation as much as I did. It's clear that there's a breadth of experience and knowledge that Nullsleep brings as someone who's been a part of New York City ship team for so long, and it was great to speak to someone who's been so influential in the scene. You can find Nullsleep's music at nullsleep.bandcamp.com, and you can find him on social media at Nullsleep on Instagram and the website formerly known as Twitter. What Happened to Chiptune is made by me, Spacetown, and if you'd like to support the show, you can do so by leaving a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, as that helps bring the podcast to more people. You can also simply share the podcast with those who would find it interesting. Thanks for listening.